0: Welcome to the One Hope Church podcast, where we believe Jesus is our one hope for a better life and a better world. We hope this message encourages you. Those of us that are rested and got an extra hour of sleep last night, or if you're like me and woke up at 430 this morning, just raring to go, couldn't wait to get here this morning. If we have not met, my name is Bradley. I serve as one of the pastors here at One Hope, and I'm so glad that we get to do this journey together, right? So glad that we're here. Pastor Scott and and Amber, they are leading our team that is in Guatemala right now. They arrived there safe and sound Yesterday afternoon, they had a long five-hour bus ride from the airport, five to six hours to get to the lake area where they will be serving and ministering and sharing the hope of Jesus with the Guatemala people and Happy Tummies and all of these ministries that we support. They will be serving in Guatemala for the remainder of the week. They'll be back next week for Global Impact Sunday, Hope Sunday. We can't wait for next week. It's going to be a powerful time that we get to hear and experience all that God is doing through our generosity as a church, not just here locally, but around the world. So make sure you're here for that. But um, So that's where Pastor Scott is. But I'm glad to be preaching today. We have been in a series that... Okay, it's a secret. Scott, last week, actually said that the series was over. He said that the God of series was... Last week was the final week. Week 9 was it. But here's the deal. Scott is in Guatemala, and I am here. And, and he, doesn't, he doesn't know, or and he can just get over it. So this week is the real end to the God of Ceres. So we're, I thought, you know, what, nine weeks? Let's just, let's go ten weeks. Let's make it a nice, whole, round, even number. And so today, we are going to finish the actual, the real ending. Don't tell him I said that. The real ending of the God of series today with week ten. And so I'm really excited to talk about that. And in this series, we've gone nine weeks and now ten weeks talking about mountains, And their significance in the Bible Talking about valleys And their significance in the Bible Talking about sticks or trees or or shrubs And their significance in the Bible And today we're going to talk about something That's pretty insignificant If you look at it on surface level But in reality it is significant We're going to be talking about rocks Rocks Now I understand I get it Rocks seem very insignificant Unless Unless you are my nine year old and she thinks that this pouch of rocks is very significant. And I will tell you that these rocks in this pouch are really not all that significant, other than they are shiny and they were not free. She had to pay for these rocks. Now, typically, you can go out into your yard and you can pick up rocks like this that are free. Now, they may be dirty but they are the same size and shape rocks. They're just not shiny, and they don't come in a, in a nice red pouch that she got. So for her, these rocks are very significant, although to me, these rocks seem very insignificant because rocks, as a whole, rocks seem very insignificant as objects. But the reality is that rocks and stones play a vital role in God's story in the Bible, they are actually very much significant in the Bible. The word rock, the word stone, those two words combine together to appear in the Bible, the NIV translation of the Bible, over 300 times. That should tell us right there just how significant rocks can actually be. Pretty significant. So today, we're gonna finish the God of series by going with the final, last teaching, I promise, the last teaching, the God of rocks. Is that okay? Can we just say rocks? Just say rocks. It's a fun, fun word to say, rocks. Better than stone, we'd say the God of rocks. He's the God of mountains, the God of valleys, the God of streams, the God of sticks, and he is the God of rocks. And so that's where we're going to pick up today. So I'm glad that you're here. I am like many of you, I enjoy vacationing at the coast, be it Atlantic, Pacific, Gulf Coast, wherever. I love to go to the beach. I love the ocean. I love the waves. I love the sun. I love the seafood. I don't love the sand, but I love everything else about the beach. And I've never once thought about the the construction of a home or a a building of condos at the beach. Perhaps, unless you have a home or have a condo, you've never really thought about the construction of that structure before either. But this week, as I started thinking about this, this teaching, I began to think about how homes on the coast are constructed. And they're constructed differently than our homes here. There are safeguards, there are codes, there are things that they have to do there that we don't do here to ensure the longevity, to ensure the strength of the structure that sits above ground, if you will. So the very first step that, it, that they do when they construct a home on the coast is they drill down or they dig deep and they place pilings in the ground. Sometimes 25 to 30 feet in the ground they will dig and place these pilings all in an effort to reach Bedrock to reach a rocky bottom, to reach a foundation of which is secure enough to support the strength of a home above it. Similarly, our homes here are built in a way where we pour concrete foundations all as a means of supporting the structure above. We have to reach the bottom. We have to reach the foundation. We have to reach the bedrock To support the home above. Now, this is absolutely not a teaching about geology. I know nothing about geology. It's not a teaching on construction. I know nothing, maybe more than Scott, but I know nothing about construction. But this is a teaching about the value and the significance of us understanding the rock foundation that we have. I I get it, it's a little cliche, but I'm gonna say it anyway. What we build our lives on, much like the way a home is built on the coastline of Alabama or Florida, what we build our lives on, it matters. What we base our marriages on, what we base our relationships on, what we base our jobs and every aspect of our life, all of those things, it matters. It matters the rock that we build on. It matters how deeply we drill into the foundation. It matters. So today, take your Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, you have your phone or tablet. All the Scripture is going to be on screen. I'm going to be very forward with you. We're going to jump around through several stories in Scripture, okay? So you may not want to flip and try and keep up. You may just want to watch it on the screen, but there's a Bible in the seat back in front of you. You also have Bible apps on your phone. You may have brought your Bible with you. But let's turn in our Bibles. The very first story we're going to look at is Exodus chapter 17. Exodus, the second book in the Old Testament. So go to the very beginning Go two books over, and you'll find the book of Exodus. And we're going to go all the way back to chapter 17 in the book of Exodus. And here in Exodus, Moses is leading the people out of slavery in Egypt and into the land that God promised them. We refer to it as the promised land. And on this journey towards the promised land, Moses is leading a wandering group of Israelites A whole nation of Israelites. And they're wandering through the desert. They're wandering through the wilderness where there is no food, there is no water. And they begin to grumble. They begin to complain. I would complain, too, if I was out here in the desert with nothing to drink and nothing to eat. And Moses understands their frustration. And he begins to feel the pressure and the frustration himself. And so we read... In chapter 17, starting in verse 2, it says, So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses replied, Why why, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people, see, they were thirsty for water, and they grumbled against Moses. And they said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Just to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst. And then Moses, he cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord answered Moses. He said, Go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock And water will come out of it for the people to drink. And so Moses did this in the sight of the elders. Moses obeyed and followed the command of God. He listened, and sure enough, what happened? Water came flowing from the rock the moment that Moses struck his staff, and it quenched the thirst of the Israelite people. Now, I sympathize in this story with Moses on a parental level okay hear me out if you've ever been on a road trip with your your kids or your grandkids and you want to take them somewhere fun somewhere exciting right you want to show them a whole new world out there so you take off down the road and all you hear from the back seat is what i'm hungry i'm thirsty are we there yet how much longer where's chick-fil-a we hear all of these questions and moses moses gets very similar questions with the exception of chick-fil-a but he gets the same questions and moses gets frustrated just like we as parents we get frustrated but moses couldn't say what we often find ourselves saying when we're driving down the road and our kids are grumbling and they're complaining and they're saying i'm hungry and i'm thirsty and we say if you don't stop i'm going to turn this car around and take you back home I wonder if Moses actually thought, you know, would it just be easier if I took them back to Egypt? But no, Moses didn't take them back. When Moses reached the end of his rope, what did Moses do? Moses cried out to God. And God provided for Moses. There was no refrigerator. There was no pantry. There was no grandmother or grandfather. There was no Sprint Mart. There was no Quick Mart. There was no Bucky's, There was no Chick-fil-A. They were in the desert. There was nothing. Nothing. And God provided for Moses through a rock. And what I want us to see through this short story here, before we move on, is that Through Moses' desperation, God brought provision through a rock. It was the rock that brought provision. See, certainly God could have made it rain. Certainly it was within his power to lead them to a well or to a stream. But no, God provided for Moses through a rock. And it wouldn't be the last time. See, again, in Numbers chapter twenty. Moses would find himself in the same predicament. He would find himself in the same position where he would be forced to strike the rock so that water would flow for the people of Israel and their nourishment would come and the livestock would survive and their children would survive. And what it's important for us to see is that for moments, for Moses, in his moments of desperation, God uses, not a stream or a well, God uses a rock for provision. And Moses is desperate more than once for God's rock of provision. We move ahead. 1 Samuel chapter 17, a very familiar story of David and Goliath. But let me, let me paint the picture really quick before we pick up in 1 Samuel 17, verse 49. David is a shepherd boy. Goliath is a giant Philistine warrior just pestering the Israelite people, just toying with them as they are engaged in battle. And Moses steps up to the plate when no one else would. Moses has the... David has the courage to step up to the plate and face Goliath. So what they do is they take David and they give him a helmet. They give him armor. They give him a sword. And David is like, I, I can't hardly move in this, much less fight. So David takes all of it off. And what does David do? He goes to a stream. And he selects five smooth stones. And he takes those stones... And he puts them in his pouch. And then we pick up in verse 49. It says, Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. And so David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. See, David's belief that God would protect him, it served as a catalyst for David's action. David even goes so far, before he takes the sling and the stone out, in verse 47, he announces to the Philistines, he announces to everyone present, all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword, It is not by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord, and he will give all of you into our hands. For David, it wasn't a sword. It wasn't heavy armor. It was the stone that brought David protection. It was the stone. And this protection, brought by a stone and a sling, through the power of god that is what gave david and the israelite people victory that day it wasn't a sword it wasn't by that might it was by the might of a single simple stone a rock if you will because rocks served as provision rocks they served as protection that's not all There are numerous instances and accounts and stories that we read in the Old Testament where monuments were set up, where memorials to the presence of God were set up so that all the people would know the power and the presence and the faithfulness of God. In fact, in just a few chapters before David battles Goliath in 1 Samuel, Samuel himself is interceding on behalf of the Israelite people. And we read in chapter 7, it says, While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such panic that they were routed before the Israelites. Through the thunder, God brought victory to the Israelite people. And a few verses later, we read of Samuel's response to this victory. It says in verse 12, Then Samuel took a stone and he set it between Mizpah and Shin. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. Samuel set a stone to acknowledge the faithfulness and the presence of God. He set a stone. And the word Ebenezer literally means stone of help. And this Ebenezer stone, this stone serves far more than a reminder of victory. It serves as a reminder of who the victory came through. It was not a memorial for victory, it was a memorial to God for bringing the victory. And they did it through a rock, through a stone. In Genesis chapter 28, all the way back to the very first book of the Bible, Jacob is on a long journey. And we pick up this journey, and it says in chapter 28, verse 11, when he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head, and he laid down to sleep. Let's take a time out. Let's pause for a second, and let's reflect on the fact that, that Jacob slept on a rock. Now, I've been camping. I know a lot of you go camping, but I don't think that when you go camping in your, your travel trailer or your fifth wheel that you're laying your head on a rock. Now, some of us, we've been in a lot of different hotel rooms, and next time you are in a hotel room and you lay down on a bed or on a pillow, like this is as hard as a rock, I just want you to close your eyes for just a moment, and I want you to consider Jacob, who slept on an actual rock, In the good part about what happened when he fell asleep on this rock is he had a powerful encounter with the lord we pick up in 28 verse 16 it says when jacob awoke from his sleep he thought surely the lord is in this place and i was not aware of it he was afraid and said how awesome is this place This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and he set it as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. Because of the encounter that Jacob had with the Lord in his sleep on a rock, he set up a pillar of worship. He set up a monument of praise, a memorial to the faithful presence of God while he was asleep on a rock. I wish God would come to us in these ways today. In the book of Joshua, Joshua, God commands Joshua to follow the ark of the covenant of the Lord in crossing the Jordan River on their way to the promised land. And Joshua sensing that God is going to do something. Joshua tells the people of Israel, "Tomorrow God is going to do something amazing among you." It was his expectation that led to this. And then the next day, sure enough, as the ark of the covenant of the Lord is approaching the Jordan River and the priests' feet touch the water, what happens? God parts the waters. The waters stopped flowing in both directions in the Jordan River. And all of God's people, the whole Israelite nation, passed through the river on dry ground. Does that sound familiar? And then God gives Joshua this command in chapter 4. He says, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan from right where the priests are standing and carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. And so Joshua did. He commanded the men to take a stone from right where the priests were standing and take it to the place where they would stay that night. And then he tells them this, in the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? You tell them, that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, and these stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. Forever. See, those 12 stones that Joshua had them in set up They not only serve as a reminder of what God did that day, they served as a continual reminder of all that God had done going all the way back to when Moses led the Israelite people out of Egypt and across the Red Sea on dry ground. See, Joshua, he is recognizing the power and the presence of God that day while remembering the power and the presence of God in the days that came before. And he did it through a rock. See, their stone stood to remind themselves and those who would come after them of all that God had done and continues to do. As if God is saying to his people, as if God is saying to us right now, don't forget what I have done. Don't forget all I have done for you. So before we move any further into this teaching, let's not forget what God has done through the lives of those in Scripture. Don't forget the provision. Don't forget the protection. Don't forget the presence of God. Because their stone, their stone reminded future generations of the faithful presence Of God, and we can't forget it. So before we move on, don't forget, don't forget that Moses struck a rock. Don't forget that David slung a rock. Don't forget, don't forget that Joshua and Samuel and Jacob, they set a rock as a signpost for generations to come of all that the Lord had done. So that even we today, even we today can remember what God has done through the power of his presence and the testimony of scripture. Don't forget. But we can be sure. We can be sure that God is not done. We can be sure that God's not done with the imagery and the significance of rocks in the lives of his people. We can be sure that it's not just the Old Testament provision, the Old Testament protection, the Old Testament presence of a faithful God. We can be sure there's more. So we fast forward to the New Testament and we go to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And Paul is writing a letter to the church in Corinth. Church in Corinth was a very young church a very naive church corinth as a city was a very prominent city situated in greece it was prominent commercially it was prominent politically and the church in corinth was growing but it was divided and it was in turmoil they battled immorality they battled false teaching they battled all of these things and paul sees fit to write them a letter to illustrate to them exactly what's happening. And Paul was reminding them of the Israelite history when he writes this letter. Because we have to remember all of this imagery in the Old Testament use of a rock. It's not done flippantly. It's not done for literary prowess. And so uh, Paul writes this in chapter 10, verse 3. He says, they all ate the same spiritual food. And they all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the same spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. See, Paul was reminding them of the history that had come before when Moses struck the rock and water flowed. But most importantly, he is now identifying Christ as that rock. All that imagery of the Old Testament, all that imagery of the Old Testament was not done so that God could tell us I love geology. No, it was done. It was done with a very significant purpose in mind. It was done. God used the Old Testament imagery of a rock to point to the rock that is Jesus. And Paul affirms that to the Corinthians. But it's not just Paul that affirms that. We can look back again to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32. And in the book of Deuteronomy... In chapter 32, we hear some of Moses' final words to the Israelite people. The Bible refers to it as Moses' song. And we read in verse 3, it says, I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect, and all his ways are just. See, Moses Moses proclaims the greatness of God. But then a few verses later, he illustrates for the Israelites their wrongdoing. And he says in verse 15, they abandoned the rock who made them and rejected the rock their Savior. And again, in verse 18, you deserted the rock who fathered you. You forgot the rock who gave you birth. See, the same God, the same rock that provided and protected, and was a faithful presence in the lives of the Israelites, he was also rejected over and over and over again. And God knew, God knew that there would be generation after generation that would need this reminder. And so Moses, at the end of his song to the Israelite people, He stands up, and in verse 46, he says, Take to heart all the words I have solemnly declared to you this day. They are not just idle words for you. They are your life. So we look back, and we see these words. Oh, praise the greatness of God. He is the rock. His works are perfect, and his ways are just. We couple that with this. They are your life the value and the significance of Christ as the rock. It was not just Moses. It was not just Paul. Jesus himself affirms and confirms his symbolic identity as the rock while affirming this same rejection that Moses points to in Deuteronomy 32. But but Jesus does it in the book of Matthew. In chapter 21. But again, Jesus is not speaking words that have not been heard before. He echoes the words that are written in scripture in Psalm 118 when he says these words, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus himself has become the cornerstone now that may sound confusing let me explain a little bit about what jesus is referring to in this instance in the first century they would build homes they would build buildings out of stone and these stone builders these stone masons if you will as they were constructing any building or home as they found pieces of stone that were unusable that were broken that were less than ideal to put into this home they would simply discard them push them to the side, reject them. But there was always one stone that would serve as the most vital, critical piece of construction. Perhaps it was the stone that sat in the corner of the building that held two walls together. Perhaps it was the finishing stone, the stone that was placed at the very end of a project to signify that it was complete, that it was finished. And here, Jesus is referring to himself as the stone, the cornerstone that was and will continue to be marginalized, that will continue to be pushed to the side, the stone that will continue to be rejected over and over and over again. But what happens? Jesus becomes glorified and he sits at the right hand of God the Father and he becomes the very stone that the builders rejected. He becomes the one that is the most important, the essential piece, the cornerstone of all life and faith and it is Jesus himself who holds it all together. He is the cornerstone. The same stone that the builders rejected becomes all that we need. And Paul, Paul knew all too well this value of seeing Christ as the rock, as the cornerstone. And when Jacob and Samuel and Joshua, when they built these monuments of the presence of God. When they built these pillars of worship so that generation after generation they would ask, what's different? What does this signpost mean? Paul was that next generation who saw with his eyes the Ebenezer's that were built, who saw and heard with his own ears the stories of how God provided and protected and was a faithful presence in their life. Because it wasn't easy being a Christian in the first century. And Paul Paul needed the encouragement, just like we need the encouragement today. See, Paul, before he became a follower of Christ, before he had a dramatic faith experience with Jesus, Paul was a tax collector who persecuted Christians, hunted them down, taxed them into poverty, had them arrested, had them killed, simply because they believed in Christ as their rock. What happens? What happens when A builder doesn't drill down deep enough into a bedrock to build a home on the coast. What happens when they don't pour the foundation of our homes here in the right way? Those homes begin to erode. Those homes begin to crack. Those homes begin to fall and wash away. And likewise, likewise, in our moments of uncertainty, in our moments of doubt, we need to discover the same thing that Paul is about to discover. See, Paul, Paul lived it and Paul learned it first by persecuting Christians, and then by becoming the one that was persecuted. And Paul recounts this suffering. Paul recounts this, this opportunity to discover Christ as the rock when he writes this letter to the second Corinthians. He writes a letter in chapter 11. He says, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. But he's not done. He says, I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Paul not only understood and proclaimed that Jesus was the rock, Paul relied on it. Paul trusted in it. Paul went to it. Christ, the rock, through every need... Christ the rock provided for Paul. Through every imprisonment, every lashing, every stone that was cast in his direction, Paul, for Paul, Christ the rock was protecting him. Through every single circumstance and suffering that Paul endured, Christ the rock was a faithful presence even to the very end of his life. Christ the rock was with him. And Paul is proclaiming to the Corinthian church, And he's writing to us now who are onlookers in this story. And he's saying, in a sense, go to the rock. Go to the rock. Because as Paul found out, life will erode our foundation away. Waves of circumstances will beat against the pilings that we have falsely placed in our lives. The rain of doubt, it will pour heavy and the winds of all of our failed relationships and failed circumstances will batter against our lives and it will begin to wash away. And it's in our moments of need that we begin to discover just how deeply we have drilled into the foundation that is Christ. It's not when times are good. It's not when things are going our way but it's in our moments of doubt and uncertainty and if we don't build our lives on christ the rock the structure will not last it won't last and i believe that there are two groups of people today and there's one group and you're sitting you're watching online and you can say to yourself i Trust in Christ as my rock. He is the foundation of my life. I look to Jesus as my provision. I know that he is my protection. I know that he is present with me in difficulty. And I say to all of you that that fall into that group today, great, but don't stop there. My prayer for that group of people today is that your life would be a signpost. Your life would be an Ebenezer stone to your kids and to your grandkids and to your, to your friends and to future generations that they may see your life and wonder what's different. They may see your life as a stone of remembrance, a stone, a memorial, a monument to God's presence and power in your life. Don't just be someone that looks to God as the rock. Set your life as a signpost that people will know. That's your job today. And then there's, there's one more group. There's one more group of people that I want to encourage today. And perhaps, perhaps today you are realizing that your life is not rooted in the foundation of Christ. Perhaps you haven't drilled deep enough into that bedrock. Perhaps the foundation of your life is already eroding away. Perhaps it's already cracking, or even worse, perhaps it's already in shambles. And to those of you that fall into that group today, I do not condemn you, I do not throw stones at you, but I do say this and echo the words that I think Paul would say to us in this instance, and that is simply this, go to the rock. If you have needs that only God can provide for, go to the rock. If you have areas of your life, areas that you need God's protection, it might be spiritual protection, it might be physical protection, it might be mental protection, areas of your life where the enemy is continually attacking you, and you need the presence of God to help you navigate and overcome these circumstances, you need to go to the rock if you need to recognize God's presence in a dark place in your life, you need to do one thing. You need to go to the rock. And it's likely, very likely, that most of us today, and this includes myself, that there is some area of our life where we have not fully built and placed our foundation in all that Christ offers us. And collectively, we need to make our way to the rock that is Jesus. We need to shore up the foundation of our fragile lives because if one more storm comes... If one more storm, one more financial situation, if one more gust of wind blows, one more argument in our marriages, if one more, one more wave crashes, one more mental crisis that leads us into depression, it may erode what's left of our life, and we have to do one thing. We have to go to the rock. There is no other place. There is no other person. It's only Jesus, as he himself Affirms as Paul affirms, we need to go to the rock. And so what I'm going to do is all over the room right now, can we just can we collectively stand together and we, can we enter into a moment where we pray and ask God for a few things? Over and over and over again, in the book of Psalms, there are laments, There are confessions, there is acknowledgement, and there is encouragement from the writer of the Psalms. And today, as we close, as we approach God and respond to him, the rock of our salvation, I want to pray these Psalms over every individual and every family and every situation and circumstance. So all over the room, you may stand, you may kneel, you can flood these altars with your needs for provision. You can come to the rock that is Jesus right now. So hear these words from Psalms as encouragement. Psalm 28. To you, Lord, I call. You are my rock. Do not turn a deaf ear to me. Psalm 31, turn your ear to me, come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of salvation, my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. Here, Psalm 71, be my rock of refuge to which I can always go. Give the command to save me, for you are my rock. And my fortress God we acknowledge who you are by hearing these words Psalm 18 the Lord is my rock my fortress and my deliverer my God is my rock in whom I take refuge my shield and the horn of my salvation my stronghold Psalm 62 truly Truly, He is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never, I will never, I will never be shaken. Psalm 31. Since you are my rock, my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. And Father, as we prepare our hearts to respond to you today, we hear these words from Psalm 78. They remembered that God was their rock, that God Most High was their Redeemer. In Psalm 95, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. So, Father, today, would you remind us of the provision? Would you remind us of the protection? Would you remind us of your faithful presence in our time of need? And may our lives be not built on a fragile foundation of the world, but may we find our hope, our refuge, and our strength in the rock of Jesus Christ, our fortress, and our salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from One Hope Church. If you liked this message and would like to hear more, check out our website at ouronehope.com for message archives, service times, and more information on how you can get connected. Thanks again for listening, and we hope to see you soon.